0: This webinar recording is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you are looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. We have a webinar by Mustafa Akil. He is a senior fellow at the Katos Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam and modernity. Our host today is Ali Salman. The topic is reforms in the Islamic world a la Luther or a la Locke.
1: Hello Mustafa and uh, hello everyone. I hope that you can he- hear me. I can hear you perfectly well. Hello. Okay, great. Sorry, there was a technical hitch on my end. I was just trying to, to join as a moderator. Welcome uh, Mustafa to Istanbul Network uh, webinar and welcome um, everyone who have already uh, joined the room virtually. This is new and exciting experience for us. And first time we are doing this webinar, starting with you, Mustafa Akhul, and I'm um, really looking forward to you. I guess that we have introduced already through our uh, announcements, what is the format? Uh, but let me do it again here. The title of this talk, uh, Mustafa and, and, and everyone, is Reforms in the Islamic World, a la Luther or a la Locke, uh, which is based on um, your article, which you published uh, last year in Atlantic, in which you had differentiated what kind of reform strategy or path uh, to reforms are needed in the in the Muslim world. And I guess that that will be sort of a center of discussion today. And um, we would request you to speak for about 20 minutes, and then we will uh, go on uh, for more interactive uh, discussions uh, with everyone here.
2: Thank you so much, Ali, and hello, and salam alaikum, and, you know, good afternoon or good morning wherever you are in the world right now. Thanks for having this. It's a pleasure, and, you know, it's time. Humble Network is very important organization that you know I've been a part of for many years and doing something really important and this is an important topic so I'm glad I have a chance to speak I see some old friends at you know Linda and personally I want to extend my regards to them and for everybody of course in the room now let me begin with this why do we need reforms in the Muslim world in the first place maybe this is just the idea that has to be questioned what does this all talk about I'm sure many Muslims are Around the world will say what, what why do we need anything like this I mean, why is why are these trying to insert these foreign concepts uh, into our language into our intellectual scene so i'll begin with this I think overwhelmingly most Muslims will agree that the state of the Muslim world is not something to be proud of in the past couple of centuries there was a time that Muslims were you know the pioneers in sciences and was the most powerful and advanced civilization and we were inventing algebra and, and medicine and advancing a lot of thoughts and philosophy and so on and so forth. So we were proud of the Ottoman majesty or the Abbasid caliphate and so on and so forth. But in the past couple of centuries, the Muslim world is in a bad state of affairs. And probably everybody agrees on different solutions. Why are we in a bad state of affairs? Well, the Muslim world is economically and politically uh, economically weak. It doesn't produce much. If you leave aside oil, the Muslim countries really produce very little compared to others of the world. We produce very little signs and because of all that weakness and we have been colonized and then uh, after colonization you know we created nation states and so on so forth but most of these are despotic states there are hardly any you know free countries in the muslim world only tunisia lately you know has, has been upgraded to the level of a free country but most muslim countries are not free in terms of public in terms of political and civil liberties religious freedom some of them are half free there are conflicts deep conflicts in the Muslim world, civil wars, wars between Muslim states, wars within Muslim states. So the Muslim world is not in a good shape. Probably everybody agrees on it. Now, why are we in this bad shape? One way to answer this question is to say someone did this to us. Like, we are in this bad state because the dark forces in the world conspired against us. They used mm-hmm. evil techniques, conspiracies, plus whatever to bring Muslims to this evil state of affairs, this bad state. That is honestly quite popular in the Muslim world because it makes us feel a bit better. Like we are in this bad state of affairs because someone, it could be the Westerners, the Jews, the hypocrites among us, the traitors among us, or this sect or that group, and, and the other Muslim, the Shia or the Ahmadis, or this, means I mean, somebody did this to us, the people or the liberals did this to us. And this conspiratorial narrative is very powerful. And actually, I think the explosion of conspiracy theory in the Muslim world, it, it, which is a modern phenomenon, has a lot to do with this, Exp- with this effort to explain the bad state of affairs, I think this. I mean, and b- by having said this, I should grant that yes, I mean the Muslim world has suffered a lot from external forces. Colonialism is a destructive destructive. So there has been a lot of forces on us that really made everything worse. But I think blaming only this outside so-called conspiracy doesn't solve anything, it actually deepens our conflicts because we blame each other for being agents of the conspiracy and keep fighting among each other. And it stops us from looking into the more internal roots of the problem. And when you look at the internals of the problem, oh, you will see, oh, the Muslim world is lagging behind in economy, in science, in in political organization, in in creating a culture of tolerance and pluralism, and so on and so forth. You ultimately ask why, why, why? And not everything is directly related to religion there are religious reasons for the problems why I'm saying there are religious reasons for the problems well look at Iraq and Syria today there's a tension conflict between Shia and certain elements of the Sunni forces in Iraq and Syria and this is a political conflict on the one hand these are authoritarian despotic states so somebody captures the stadiums are excluded so this creates a entry but also if you look oh you will see Salafis who will condemn the Shia as rafidis, and you know that they think think that they deserve death and you will see some Shia looking at the Sunnis the Yazid and they have a religious understanding of the other side. So there's sectarianism. So it has a political side but it's a doctrinaire side as well. Or when you look at uh, why don't we have civil liberties, why don't we have political liberties in the Muslim world? Well there are just despots who just use power as as elsewhere in the world. But then you see you know religious justification of despotism. Or you see religious justification of suppressing free speech you see you know bad on blasphemy apostasy that people can be killed for changing their religion or threatened killed for changing their religion and so on so forth of course one could say the religious doctrine is just fine and the implications are just fine no problem with that but i from looking from a perspective of why things have gone bad i look at the bad i see bad consequences and when i look at it i see some religious doctrine behind that so therefore i am of opinion that the mainstream religious teachings that we have in the Muslim world today needs some questioning, uh, needs some reinterpretation, some renewal, and yes, maybe a reform. Uh, But whenever I use the word reform, I emphasize that I don't mean reform in the sense of the Protestant Reformation. That is an analogy that comes up all the time, especially in the West, because Westerners think in terms of their own history and think that the Protestant Reformation was an important step forward, and then you know came after that democracy and, and freedom of speech and so on and so forth. So, and they think that you know maybe a Luther. That's a common thing that you hear. I, I don't agree with that because we don't have the problem that the, that Luther and other Protestants were facing. That's one problem. There was a centralized Catholic Church. Church in the Middle Ages, which was suppressing dissent and, and diversity and free thought, science, uh, and we don't have that problem. We don't have a centralized Catholic, uh, Catholic Church. We, we we rather actually have a very decentralized, you know, diver- like a very fractured. That's one thing. Secondly, Protestant Reformation didn't bring actually good to Europe. At least right away, it brought centuries of uh, centuries of religious wars and persecution. And Protestants were not liberal or I mean, I mean most of them. I mean, there there was a diversity that but uh, they were also believing that heretics should be burned at the stake so the Protestants were non-liberal. What brought, what brought the more admirable liberal democracies of the West today? And again, people can say, oh, liberal democracies are horrible things, we can discuss that. But I think liberal democracy has so far in human history the best political system devised, at least in the modern era. They came out not the, directly to the Protestant information. The Protestant information triggered something obviously big in Europe. It came out, the, like, out of the Enlightenment they came out of ideas of tolerance to diversity, ideas of freedom of speech, ideas of freedom of religion, uh, equality before law, rule of law, uh, markets, you know, pri- right to private property and uh, enterprise and so forth. So they came out of the liberal tradition of the Enlightenment. it came out of John Locke or Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and so on and so forth, what, what we call as classical liberalism. So, and when I look at the Muslim world today, I see parts of the Muslim world, where much pre-enlightenment if there is a historical knowledge. I can say there is no need for any Circle analogy. Every civilization is a civilization. Doesn't have to follow the same route. There's an argument for that. I see that. But but then there are maybe similarities. And because I mean, the idea that people should be killed for punished at least somehow for heresy or apostasy was there in Europe as well. It was overcome by the Enlightenment. With a lot of effort. The idea that you know criticizing the government as sedition was there in in uh, even until early 19th century, and, and it was over, uh, early 20th century, and it was overcome later by. You know, more arguments for free speech, and so on. So, so th- we are somewhere. Therefore, in not the whole Muslim world, course, is not uh, monolithic. But especially so-called Islamic states, for like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the states who claim to hold the Sharia, and also in other states that are not explicitly Islamic, but uh, let's say Egypt. Take Egypt today. Egypt is considering banning atheism as a you know, dangerous ideology, a, a worldview, a- this kind of worldview. Uh, and that is something you would find in Europe or the West a few centuries ago. Uh, now, if we want to achieve liberal democracies in the Muslim, and again, people can object, but I want to achieve liberal democracy. There needs to be a revisiting of the religious teaching that we have at hand as Islam. Because, I mean, if you look at Muslim world, you will see, I mean, if you look at our doctrine, for example, a burning issue is apostasy. I recently spoke about it in Malaysia and got arrested. It for saying see, probably should not be a crime, which shows that this is a serious issue. You know, people can lose heart in one religion. People can turn into from Islam to Christianity, other religion. People can become secular. This happens, and from a liberal democratic point of view, you can say, well, it's a choice what you can do. You can try to persuade them still if they change their opinion that if their feelings hearts change, what can you do? Well, but in classical four Sunni schools of Islam and 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 also the Ja'fari school. Islam. It is a crime punishable by death and that is implemented in southern countries, in, in let's say 10 at least, Muslim countries, but predominantly Muslim countries. And what do we do with this? I would argue, well let's go y, see, consider why apostasy is a crime. Actually it's not in the Quran, it's actually coming from some hadiths. Those hadiths are disputable. Scholars interpreted this issue at a time when the idea of religious freedom or individual liberty was not established and your religious allegiance was also your political allegiance made a decision based on their time and context we live in a different time and context today so we can reinterpret that this is a very simple example of what I mean by reform by reform I don't mean like cutting a part of the Quran and taking it out or these kind of sometimes you know ridiculous ideas come from the West what I mean is rereading the Quran going through the hadiths going through our religious sources, and reinterpreting them in the light of the modern era and already people have been suggesting this and doing this since the 19th century in the It began with, you know, Muhammad Abduh in Egypt, uh, certain Ottoman liberals in the late Ottoman Empire. It went on in a century. Figures like, you know, Fazul Rahman developed this idea of historicity of Islam, that, you know, there's a divine core of Islam, but there's a historical context in which it developed. And and that historical context itself is not sacred. That historical context is a historical era, and now we are in a different history. So we can go through this. Of course, who is we and who's going to do that? That is a very difficult question, and it's, Since there is no central authority, this can only happen organically, this can only happen by Muslim intellectuals, Muslim clerics, Muslim authorities, institutions, you know, changing their opinions and their uh, attitudes, ultimately that their laws, the laws of the certain laws of states that we have, towards more freedom to diversity, towards more tolerance, towards not persecuting the Ahmadis in Pakistan, or towards not suppressing the Shia in, in Saudi Arabia, or towards uh, you know, allowing criticisms of the government in most Arab states, and in Turkey even today, I should say, not criminalizing it. So this is a very difficult goal to achieve, and no wonder the Enlightenment didn't take place right away. It took place with individuals who are you know risking their lives, and or it took place with some you know pioneering figures having some ideas and planting some thoughts, and you know others advancing that. It took a couple of centuries to. Uh, come from the enlightened to liberal democracy of the West today. And I think we are in the century of Islam today. The 21st century will be the time when uh, what is really Islam? What part of Islam are we really, that we Muslims should uphold as sacred and unchangeable? And what, what other aspects of the Islamic tradition that we have today can be, you know, reinterpreted is a question that we will face. And here's one example, like actually we have changed the Islamic tradition Thank you. We have reformed the Islamic tradition significantly on a few issues one example slavery slavery is in Islamic law Quran encourages freeing a slave but Islamic law I mean Islamic civilian did not abolish slavery until the 19th century and beginning in the 19th century with British influence on the Ottoman Empire there began a you know campaign to ban a first the slave trade the Ottomans banned slave trade and there was a revolt in today's Saudi Arabia then the peninsula against the Ottomans Partly because of Ottomans banning, you know, slave trade because it was in the Sharia. Uh, but then, you know, throughout the 20th century, most Muslims accepted yes, I mean, slavery should not be something that we should pursue. And today, probably universally, it's accepted that slavery is a thing of the past. And although it's in, you know, classical jurisprudence, only ISIS, the craziest of all radical groups out there, made a case of re-establishing slavery in the Middle of Iraq and Syria. And luckily now it's been to a great extent. So oh, this shows that. The tradition we have at hand carries the weight of history and we can reinterpret it. If you did it on slavery, we can do it on women's rights. We can do it on the idea of quality between Muslims and non-Muslims. And why would we do it a good question? Because some Westerners want that from us because you're they're drinking their whiskey in New York and say, oh, let the Muslims change. That would be nice for us. It can be nice for them, but not because it's nice for them. It is because of us. It is so that we can have Muslim societies from which we're proud of. We cannot, Muslim societies where people are not killed, persecuted, jailed, demonized because of what they think or what they believe, so that those societies can be more diverse, more open, more, more productive, more creative. And, and you know, we would not have them migrating from those countries to the West to find, you know, uh, safe heavens, to find uh, security and so on and so forth. Quite the contrary, people come to work. We should be the right, you know, part of the world as we once were, like 10th century. And I think the way that goes through some reform, this reform, and this will happen organically, and it will happen through intellectuals, clerics, institutions going through and taking positions, more positions on certain things. And, and there, there are already efforts like that, but we need more and more. So this is what I can say as an introduction to today's talk. Thanks again, Ali, for having me on this, and thanks to everybody for joining. Thank you, Mustafa,
1: and thank you for this opening talk. I think you have laid out the basis of discussion very clearly. My take is that you are focusing on reforms within the religious tradition, interpretation of religious sources to answer and address the modern problems you have mentioned about women's rights, you mentioned about slavery, and you've mentioned that how you know the the rigidity maybe the in uh, traditional religious sources still is an obstacle and uh, we'll be moving on to the questions and answers i'll ask starting question right now and just the others who want to join the discussion i understand that you will be able to show hand or uh, press a button on your screen and then i'll see who is interested in asking a question or a comment and then i will
2: uh, hand over the mic can i add one more thing one minute before we move to questions okay go ahead additional talk okay i should also add some of our problems today not come from tradition but from the destruction of tradition being modernized in a very bad way like what i mean here uh modernity in itself is not a blessing like in the 20th century for example the civil society tradition we had before was replaced by all encompassing states arab states and in turkey the Republic, Republican Turkey. Republican Turkey confiscated the foundations in the Ottoman Empire, foundations of non-Muslims and non-Muslims, and you know t- take it under the control. So it was actually the tradition had allowed some freedom and diversity, and now we, we went to a kind of modernity that was authoritarian. Hierarchically, it was inspired by fascism from Europe. So I should also add that it's not just about getting everything in the tradition, it's also about seeing we also moved away from tradition sometimes in destructive ways and making a whole picture out of about battle. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you.
1: Okay, that's that's very clear.
2: Do we have any
1: starting uh, initial comments right now? I have turned on the Q&A mode, and you can ask questions, and I can and start. There's the outcome. Okay, okay. So we have three uh, speakers. I think I'll start with Linda. Okay, go ahead, Linda. and uh, please.
3: Um, What I wanted uh, Mustafa to talk more about was how you think um, these changes can come about. As you've said, there's no central authority, so they come about by discussions and people building on discussions and ideas becoming accepted, or how can you see um, it happening?
2: answer that, Ali? Yes, Yes, please go ahead, Mustafa. Yeah, well, that's a million dollar question, as I say. Nice to hear from you, Linda, by the way. Well, in in a sense, this is a national issue. Like, in every nation, in in Muslim, predominantly Muslim majority nation, there are authorities. In Malaysia, there's Jakim, you know, the uh, official institution for for religion. In Turkey, there's a Diyanet, the director of religious affairs. In Egypt, there's al Ashar. So these institutions are important, and the positions they will take are important those institutions are not going to define everybody like define for everybody there will be dissenting opinions but they can define a certain mainstream and if they come out and say well we have gone through this you know, renewal and so on and so forth and it will you know and we, we were taking this position on this particular issue it will change the mainstream dynamic of course will those institutions do that will they be allowed or encouraged by the political authorities who generally have a you know, grip on the institutions. That's a part of the picture. So, I mean, enlightenment moved move forward partly because there were some states, you know, princes supporting enlightenment ideas and so on and so forth. So although we don't want we don't want to see the state in the picture in all these issues, the state is there. So whether the states will encourage more, let's say, liberal leaning thoughts in, 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 in positions in jurisprudential positions. Uh, will allow education in a base or not. Will allow diversity, and that is really important. Uh, so it is there again. There is nobody, to, and it's just a change of mood over time. And one thing I'd like to say is that this is not going very. I mean, there has been little progress in the past two centuries, if you will, partly because while we are having this talk and this need, Muslims are also being suffocated and, you know, they're feeling their back against the wall because of, you know, Western hegemony, because of colonial war, because of the Arab Israeli conflict, and because of this and that. So to change the political dynamics in the world and making them less confrontational between East and West, between Muslims and others, can also be a part of the picture. It's a political issue. But it will influence attitudes in the Muslim world. So, and it's about intellectuals. Intellectuals have more power among Muslims than ever before. There's something about so, exactly. writers, writers so, having, having opinions, teams, columns, columns show, you yeah, show, lyrics,
0: lyrics, single
2: those are important. And, important. And, and what and is, honest, is the intramodern the intramodul- and, and honest discussion needed think about think why we do it. we need to And the only thing we, we can do is to inject ideas and ideas and it. It's more. It's a very difficult and normal process. And it differs from society to society.
3: Person. Person, yeah can you can you still hear me or have I been switched off I do uh, hear you Linda. you're
1: still
3: on yeah yeah no no that's um thank you very much that's very helpful so the sort of things the Istanbul network is doing and a, a lot of other organisations they're sort of part of this story exactly
2: exactly yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. okay okay great thank you thank you Linda for this opening question <laughs> I am moving to uh, al Ardadi now, uh, who is also running a similar organization, Kavakavi um, Foundation. Foundation. And Iyad? Iyad.
0: I hope you can hear me. Can hear me. Uh, yes, Iyad, we can hear you. Quick uh, question. Uh, maybe I'm basically diving straight into it, uh, and this is this is kind of the debate as it was stuck uh, in 2013 before uh, you know before the Arab Spring kind of took a turn towards uh, more jihadi violence. Um, there were people arguing on, on both sides of the reform formula. Some people were of the opinion that political reform has to come has to come first, um, and their argument uh, was that there's there's it's not really possible to do any kind of uh, intellectual reform um, when we don't have regimes or societies that afforded any kind of uh, political rights or freedom of speech, where it's very easy for people to be people who who actually want to do any kind of um, um uh, as you as you well know uh mustafa both me and you are exiles uh, so it it is the situation that i mean people there are people who are arguing on this side, saying that political reform has to come first so that we can do our job. And then there are those saying the opposite. they were saying that no, religious reform or uh, social reform or cultural reform has to come first. Um, and, you know, um, to be honest, their argument was adopted by authoritarian regimes because that's how you perpetuate the problem. And you say, hey, we cannot have political rights until we know that, you know, like, Islamists are not going to, to, to take over if we have a democracy and basically slaughter everyone. Um, so maybe I, I would like to, to hear what you have to say about this. How um, how we can chart a solution with any? Because it seems to me that this is the impasse.
2: Thank you. Yeah, first of all, good to hear from you. And I'm not maybe technically an exile. I can still go back to Turkey, but I relocated a little bit to you know for you know, complicated reasons. But but I see your point very well. There is no simple answer. There is no simple route, and. I would say whatever step forward we see let's embrace it in in a certain country there can be political freedom first there can be the overthrow with discussion and uh, in some other country, there can be a quote-unquote quote, enlightened despot that doesn't allow political freedoms much in the first place, but you know brings some educational reforms. Uh, you know supports more, you know opens research centers for revitalization of Islamic thought and so on and so forth. Let's take that as well. And I don't think there is no easy way. Like very bad example, but it's a current example. Take today's Saudi Arabia, the new king of Saudi Arabia. Now, this new king, uh, Mohammed bin, bin Salman, M B C right here, is, is uh, he's obviously an iron-handed ruler who's just, oppo- I mean, jailing his opponents for corruption. Although you know, corruption is a very <laughs> relative concept in Saudi Arabia, and uh, it is clear. I don't see any. And also, you know, he's leading a disastrous war in Yemen and continuing the toxic policy of, you know, sectarian tension in, in the Middle East. There are horrible things to say about Saudi Arabia today. On the other hand, even if to get brownie points from the West, he allows women to drive and, you know, he's going to allow them to come home. And I'll take that part. I'll say, okay, this is this is nice, but then I will have other issues. Uh, whereas in, in some other Muslim country, you can have a political revolution. You have Celeste, Salafi- really uh maybe gaining the upper hand politically so then you would have to deal with that I mean, in the arab spring we saw that it is not easy in the arab spring we saw that heading towards well, something called like liberal democracy in the muslim world is not going to come easy thank god tunisia is going so far well the recent protests haven't derailed it but in this issue of the where should political revolution come from uh, political Uh, it depends there is no easy way and i would say let's uh, be sympathetic to every step forward within the context of a particular country. Does this answer the question?
0: Yeah, I mean I I would add uh just a caveat here which is that uh I mean Mohammed bin Salman is pursuing these reforms but he's putting uh Muslim reformers such as Salman al-Awda and Hassan al-Maliki in prison. Uh so in a sense he his own uh, agenda of reform is really he's actually trying to preempt any kind of political reform. But I see your point in a sense that he's actually doing this because Saudi society has already transformed. He's doing this in response to the aspirations of a new generation of Saudi citizens who want to actually have have citizenship. But I think it would be dangerous for for us to be too uncritical of what you would call enlightened despot because I think it it might damage our cause. Because, you know, there are lots of people who do look up to uh, any voice for Muslim liberty I think sometimes I feel we don't appreciate our own niche and our own position highly enough. There are many people who are craving this message an Islamic liberty message. And I think it kind of it damages our own cause when we come out to be complacent about any kind of oppression.
2: That's absolutely fair and valid and a very important point, Yad. Yeah, I, I can't agree with you more. I'm not going to disagree with you on that at all. So good point. It's important to remind. mind. As I said, there is no simple way, but we should uphold liberty in any case and never, of course, support a part. I mean, another case is Sisi. I mean, he's the picture of Egypt. There's, I mean, he's been speaking about bringing moderate Islam, whatever, reform in Islam and so on and so forth. He's saying this to Western capitals to get some sympathy and support, but he's nothing but a dictator and he's actually harming Egyptian society for the future, so we should be very careful about that as well. And of course, that by, by using the term enlightened despots, I meant not people who to really suppress their societies, but there can be, especially monarchies, that are not fully democratic, but uh, you know that cheap power, but they do some reforms that will transform the society towards a better people. Maybe maybe Morocco, relatively Jordan are better examples but uh, uh, and laid out of the entire world but he uh, into a dashboard simply because he's doing some cosmetic reforms unless it's going to have some influence on society, a very fair and important point thank you
1: Iyad just a follow up question the discussion we are just having Mustafa now when you were in Malaysia last time there was like this intention which you showed when when you, I and Van Saifel were sitting together just a night before or just two days before you or detention, uh, you can you, use <laughs> you showed a strong intention of engaging with the religious bureaucracy, right? right. And, well, paradoxically, you were engaged, but on, on, on their own terms. And now you're again saying engagement with those authorities which sort of control religious and religious interpretation as opposed to, let's say, uh, so, so, so so, I think my, my question really is that how hopeful you are that once the state gives, gets the power to interpret religion, then uh, can it be engaged? you know,
2: through dialogue or through other means. Well, they, they, of course, it can be engaged. And like I, I was in Malaysia for a few days, and you know, they arrested me, and luckily like, let me go the next day. And I, I don't have much now, but influence there at all. But for example, the Islamic Renaissance Front that invited me there, you know, Ahmed Faruk. I mean, he is still challenging the authorities, and you know, in the name of a more liberal interpretation of Islam. And in in Malaysia, a interesting discussion is going on between Jakim and its supporters, and and who condemned liberalism and human rights ism you know and then then there are other Muslims who are with Islamic arguments you know opposing this kind of authoritarian understanding of Islam. well it has to be engaged and of course politics will matter it matters if you know the prime minister is supporting Jakim to you know pump up his base and it, then you are of course in a weak spot and if a new prime minister comes you know maybe Mahathir will come to the scene I don't know Malaysian politics as well as you this for sure but maybe things will change in the political scene as well well. So politics and power behind this or that rule's authority is of course very definitive. But what can you do other than not engaging? I'm not saying provoking. I'm not saying defying. But still. And it's interesting that, for example, within the conservatives in Malaysia, I've also heard lately voices saying that instead of jailing these liberals, let's talk to them. Let's show that they're wrong. Yes, that's good. Let them show us we're wrong. So let's have a conversation. Let's have it on TV, you know, so people can see. Let's, let's discuss whether, you know, Islam should be based on free choice or coercion. Let's discuss that. It will be great. So, uh, ultimately, these ideas, like, let's say, civil rights movement in the United States, how did they come out? I mean, came out with some people defending it, and others united, it, oppressed it, and so on. So, but ultimately, we gained the upper hand. So, I do believe in engaging, not provoking, not humanizing or condemning but I do believe in English, of course, preferably not my game today. Okay,
1: we, can, we go
3: back to Linda for now. Oh, okay. What about economic reform? Is sort of uh, trying to go to the route of economic reform, which I think we'd all want to do anyway, is that liable to, um, as people become more economically free and hopefully better, wealthier and things, is that liable to, to sort of ease the discussion about, about religious freedoms, political freedoms, do you think?
2: It's a very interesting question, Linda. I've been thinking about this for like a decade more, and I do, of course, believe economic reform is a part of the problem, economic freedom I mean, part of the issue and or the solution, and of economic freedom is part of the lack of general freedom we're discussing in the Muslim world today. And also, it is easier and safer to argue for economic liberalism, I right, think, in the Muslim world compared to political or you know, religious freedom. Uh, and how it will tra- well, how it will transform. It's not that you know when people open a company, they will next day become political or liberal. I mean, religious liberals. It's not that. But one, if you look at Muslim society structurally today, you will see that a part of the problem is that there are very powerful, almost despotic states in most of them. Uh, in in Arab republics like Egypt, the. Arab Army controls a big chunk of the economy. The state controls a big chunk of economy, which leads to huge amounts of corruption, which leads to lack of economic opportunity, which deprives people from you know thinking of the future in terms of having a job. And that was what led to, I mean, the revolution in Tunisia. So that big all control, controlling state is there, and and as a kind of statism, a lack of a market economy is. A, is the is the basis for that and when you have such a state that in itself creates an illiberalism in the sense that people people either try to g- gain the favors of that state or try to capture that state state becomes this leviathan that is so important and powerful that everybody looks up to this creates not maybe in those terms but it does create and perpetuate a very illiberal political culture and when you bring sometimes market into it it just becomes crony capitalism and i think part of the problem in the Muslim world today is that you either have quasi socialistic huge states or you have capitalism that is really more of a crony capitalism rather than a free market. Whereas when you have tendencies towards a free market capitalism you see more positive attitudes emerging in society. So it's not that economy will transform a free market economy will transform society directly to liberal societies. I mean we see somehow countries managing capitalism and authoritarianism at the same time like we see in China for a long time. But opening up the economy is one of the long-term still paths to nurture a more liberal culture in society where the state is less powerful and individuals open up, they open up to the world, they know more about the world and they engage with other people in win-win situations rather than competition for survival. Therefore, yes, economic transformation is important, free market economy is important. And one of the problems, as I said in, in the, uh, at the end of my 15-minute talk, is that... We moved from what could what was kind of a market-based, I mean, in some of societies to a more state-based economy in the 20th century because of, a, because of a bad form of version of modernization. So breaking that spell is a part of the problem. But still, you will have to agree what's apostasy, you will have to, I mean, discuss what is blasphemy and so on and so forth. So it will not directly change when you start but uh, it will ultimately change the social environment In these issues can be discussed more freely, and more questions will, will come up. Uh,
1: Mustafa, there is a uh, uh... Uh, one you know uh, thing i i always hint in mind in when there is a lot of uh, criticism or, or, or let's say hostility towards uh, reform minded intellectuals who are based in muslim majority countries we have seen cases of exile we have seen you know they have left the countries uh, if not mm, executed so i understand you are not in, in exile exactly but you're in a relatively free society and, and a free environment to speak as opposed to before you well let's say in in turkey or in malaysia they are very of course different environments when we talk about the influence of your um, ideas where do you think uh, you you have been at least in your personal experience more effective in um, in terms of the the outreach of your ideas based in in a Muslim majority country, which with which understandable risks, or let's say in a relatively free society, but obviously still communicating through the publications and other
0: tools
2: well I mean, Turkey and Malaysia are different cases in Malaysia I got into trouble for you know saying apostasy as should not be a crime in Turkey that would not be an issue in Turkey saying something about a president (laughs) would be an issue in Turkey there's a more of a political issue other than a theological one that's going on Um, and in Turkey I'm not like I I mean I was in Turkey last summer I will probably go this summer as well I can go back to Turkey I'm right now working in an American University Wellesley college outside which you know, getting a better job opportunity and, and, yes, a safer and saner environment compared to today's very toxic and somewhat concerning comfort. Context, but still, Turkey is a country in which you can discuss these still jurisprudential issues. It's not access to Islam, but in Turkey, the the, the current crisis is more political. I would say directly. This is just a note. And on the other question of, I mean, you're asking where are you? Where do you have more influence, in communication in the world? That Where you are really doesn't matter that much. 20, 30 years ago, of course, if you are in Turkey, you could, you know, speak to people more directly. And now with Twitter, you speak wherever you are and people see you. Or, you know, we make this conversation with you right now. The fact that I'm in Wellesley doesn't, Massachusetts doesn't stop our friends from Iran or, you know, I see other names there from being a part of the conversation. So thanks to globalization, thanks to communications, I think right now your location is not that important. Uh, Even if I was in Istanbul, sitting in Istanbul right now, what would I be doing? I would be doing this. I would be tweeting. I would be writing for the New York Times. I would be writing. uh, Still, it would be going through my computer and so on. Yeah, I could go to to a conference that that I can do now, physically. I think the world and therefore the Muslim intellectual scene has become globalized enough that their location is less important than it was before. Therefore for Muslim liberal reformists, intellectuals who feel threatened uh, in in wherever they are, I would encourage to thinking of relocation if they have a chance uh, because it's better to be able to speak, continue to speak in a different environment rather than being shut up in in a while by government. So there is some space for uh, Q and A. I'll, I'll uh, uh, because there is some lag of people. One more thing, Ali. Like uh, yes, to, to it is actually not physically where you speak. It is whether you are mentally still in the Ummah. I think that is the key issue. I mean, some of the liberal reformist Muslims have gone so out of the mainstream, have gone so out of the community, they're speaking as if they are totally from the outside and only to get support from the outside. And so that is, it's the content of their speech that hates themselves. I think that's not gonna help much. To the issues we're discussing today. People can choose whatever they want. I mean, like it's a I mean it's a caricature example, but I see, for example, names like Ayan Hirsi Ali hailed as the great Islamic reformer. Well, I mean it's her choice. Ayan Hirsi Ali is an ex Muslim, or there there might be people like her in this case. Well, they're not in the scene, they're not in, in Islam, they're outside of it, and actually quite sometimes critical, sometimes hostile to it. So th- uh, that is of course a very extreme case. But I think regarding uh, the Muslim intellectuals, liberals who are reformists. What matters is whether they are mentally in the ummah, uh, and, and whether you know their location can be this, this, or that. Great, uh, thank you, Mustafa. We will we'll take some time for uh, Q and A from uh, other participants.
1: We have uh, Muhammad and giving mic to mohammed machine from iran
0: hear me yes uh, please go ahead mohammed thank you i just wanted to point out uh, the role that you know non-muslim people play uh, in discussions recently had a case in iran that uh, Zarostri, uh was uh, elected as a local you know governor and uh, it had you know it offended a lot of people a lot of muslims thought uh, non-muslims should not govern Muslims and uh, stirred up such a big uh, controversy. So what what I was trying to uh, ask, you touched upon it very briefly, but uh, the role that non-Muslims who live in the Ummah playing. I think the role may be very important and they are often ignored. That's- okay,
2: well, should I say something on that, Ali? Should I go on? Yes, please go ahead, man. I'll <laughs> the- okay. Well, I'm glad to hear the news. I didn't know. Uh, I'd like to see more about that, actually. And yes, I mean, non-Muslims within the Ummah is a bleeding wound, actually, of the Ummah. We are typically proud when it comes to, you know, minorities. We say, you know, during the Middle Ages, Jews were being persecuted in Europe and they came to Muslim lands the Ottoman Empire to find safe haven which is true. So we have a tradition of having non-Muslims in our midst. And and however, things got better gradually in the twentieth century. Two things happened. First of all, Non-Muslims in Muslim lands, God of islam if you will, were tolerated uh, and again some non-Muslims, most non-Muslims but certain sects were not tolerated or idolatry for example. Non-Muslims were tolerated but they were not equal. Uh, and in, 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 Medi- in pre-modern times that was only normal. That was actually quite generous still. But in the modern era with the idea of citizenship, with the idea of equality before law, there came the demand that we should be all equal. And that equality of Muslims and non-Muslims, you know, a lot of reforms have taken place beginning from the Ottoman Empire to today, but it's still not culturally accepted by all Muslims. There will be. It's not legally accepted in some Muslim states, but also culturally, there's a kind of Muslim supremacy idea that you know, of course, Muslims are the ruling class, and others can be tolerated, but they cannot be ruled. and And the discussion takes place in in, in in Indonesia, in Iran, in Egypt, whether you know Christians or non-Muslims can take positions in government, uh, can become you know rulers, can become the head of state, and so on, and so forth. And that is, I think, I think we have this problem. That our medieval system was really admirable for its time, that it tolerated, that it uh, created some room for non-Muslims and diversity. But in the modern era, it gradually began to look oppressive because the idea of quality came to the scene and the notion of you know freedom. Uh, it is important that you know if, uh, developments like that you told me are taking place. We should have more of it. And of course, we have the burning question of uh, I mean. We, we, we tolerate Jews and Christians, but what about Muslims who are actually having a unorthodox point of view, like Ahmadis, let's say in Pakistan? Actually they are persecuted more than non-Muslims because they have a claim that is within Islam that goes against the stream. then they become heretics and they're suppressed more. There needs to be a culture of recognition that people are not going to be discriminated against or persecuted because of what they believe in, who they are, and it's a, it's, it's a legal matter, it's a cultural matter as well. And how do we achieve this I'll tell you one conversation I uh, had with a prominent, not conversation, like a column conversation, because I was writing a column at the, uh, at the time in Turkey. Uh, there's Hayretin Karaman. Turkey's probably the most is- prominent Islamic jurist in Turkey. I mean, if there's, you know, Karadavi in the our world, Tur- Hayatin Karaman is a figure like that. He's writing a column for Yeni Shafak, a prominent Islamic program in the newspaper. Uh, and, you know, he's a professor emeritus of Islamic jurisprudence and so on and so forth. He he wrote a column in 2013 saying that non-Muslims in Muslim lands and secular people, he categorised them as also like a kind of category. Said that you know they, they, they can of course live in Muslim societies, but they have to show respect to the majority and sh- do not unveil their practices that are a little disturbing to the majority. They should know their place and they should not, for example, publicly drink if because it's offensive to Muslims souls. And I took up on that and I said, okay, if this is a good principle that the minority should, you know, honor the majority's sensibilities and, you know, put its head down accordingly, what is the situation of Muslims in France? Should they take their headscarves off because it offends the French sensibilities of laicite? Should they not ask for halal food and go for pork in, in schools as some French sectors are asking for? They probably wouldn't do that. So if we want something for the Muslim minority in France, which is lack of discrimination, which is full respect, which is full acceptance, maybe we should do the same thing here. Or if we don't do it here, well, how can we justify it there? So forcing, I think, Muslims to consider their attitude when it is upside down, when they are not the majority but the minority, uh, which is a new phenomenon in the, in the world, by the way. In in classical era Islam, you don't have Muslim minorities living in uh, non-Muslim lands, it is not an issue. There was no immigration there was like that today so these are the kind of dialogues that needs and can a Muslim should a Muslim be elected as a governor in, in America sure why not we would like that right we'd be happy to see that so then why not somebody be elected in Iran or elsewhere as as a governor uh, if they are you know, from whatever those community they are coming from if you don't accept that how do we justify that so we should force that kind of rethinking on whether we have double standards or do we have Standard. If you have double standards, how do we justify that? Does this give any answer to your thought? I don't know. I mean, your question? Yeah, I, I understand it does. Um, uh, there's no follow up
1: uh, question right now from Mohammed. Um, uh, a- anyone else uh, in the queue? Uh, oh, Khalud is here. <laughs> Uh, yes, please go ahead,
3: Colin. Hi. Uh, first of all, thank you for this amazing opportunity. It's been very informative uh, for someone just as myself who's a layman and is very much a topic. So, forgive me if my question comes across as something that's not very well structured. I originally come from Libya, and right now, as you know, with the political situation, it's very, in, you know, there is instability everywhere. So my question is, how can polit- Islamic reform take place in a country that is predominantly uh, tribal, uh, uh, that the only ruling, uh, or not necessarily ruling, but uh, the one religious authority that seems to have the um, most, uh, what's the word? Or rather, the the main religious authority, I should say, the Guardian of that, seems to be against anything that you know could possibly be seen as Western, that could possibly be seen as air quotes uh, enlightened. Um, and specifically, if it's related to women's rights, anything related to women's rights is automatically seen as being Something uh, that is dangerous to the Libyan society, to the Islamic society, to the moral fabric of the Libyan society, etc. I mean, I don't want to digress. Really, how can someone even start to fight something like this? Or not even necessarily fight, because, or rather challenge, um, you know, these people that are in, in such a place of authority? More so, <clears throat> from my own, like I said, limited exposure, it seems to be as if religion is being used as a tool to um, control the masses um, and because no one will dare to question anything that comes from you know a religious authority or a religious edict because everyone would be too scared because the moment you start you know becoming critical of anything to do with religion you're in danger or you're seen as being someone who's looking to um, corrupt the air quotes young mind in society so it would be great to hear your opinions about something like that yeah,
2: thanks so thank well. you for the <laughs> difficult situation there right and first of all on tribalism that is a trouble we have in Libya in in uh, Afghanistan and in other parts of the Muslim world, suffocates the individual and keeps very archaic traditions, patriarchal traditions, and it also easily can lead to conflict between have some tribal affiliations. Tribalism will be cured in the. Long run. I will say, for capitalists only in a market basic to them, by and of course a central state that treats citizens. As citizens, not just the members of that tribe, is of course important, and like a transformation which would take up with generations. Probably. How do you deal with, though, how do you prevent tension between? If you have tribes, the only you know short term solution is to create some tribal alliances and some basic peace between them. And in, in Libya, that was actually made by Gaddafi uh, in a very despotic way for a decade. And, and when Gaddafi Was overthrown, uh, you had the collapse of the existing order, and what emerged was complicated tribes. So, they're settled through some negotiation between all the warring parties. Uh, Libya will, fortunately, be a a very unstable nation for a while. Now, in this environment, how can you speak about enlightenment reform and so on and so forth? It's not going to be very easy, and that's not the need. I mean, the first need is probably security, find a means to end the war. But I'll tell one thing. You know that, Carmen... Yes, like I would not recommend going there and quoting John Locke or John Stuart Mill or I don't know more liberal feminists. Or It's not going to have much impact, but I would still recommend link, uh, finding bases in classical traditional Islam against some of the misogynist practices that we see. Uh, because misogyny, the, the oppression of women, uh, comes sometimes from archaic religious texts. Sometimes it comes from not even religious, totally patriarchal traditions. And religion is sometimes your best actually defense because it's a source of legitimacy against those patriarchal traditions. For example, female genital mutilation. I, I, I'm I not sure if it's popular in Libya, but it's certainly uh, practiced in more, you know, let's say Eastern part of North Africa. Uh, how do you argue against female genital mutilation? Well, the best that you would have would be to actually rely on traditional Islamic scholars who would say this is un-Islamic. You don't need a big modern feminist liberal reform for that. You, there are grounds to say this is un-Islamic and it's a practice that is not in the Quran and the proper tradition. There, there are some of these people used to justify the you mutilation, know, but there are arguments against that as well. So w- within that very tribal traditional context, the best you can do is to find roots within the traditional still uh, frame of reference to argue against the most toxic practices you would have today. The transformation of that into a modern liberal society of and so on and so forth, that will take quite a while. And the first first goal even before that should be to stop jet and, and conflict and, and finding a, a a medium of tribal compromise and peace. I have a question. Yeah yeah okay yeah there's has a question. I will read the question. I have a question. Are we creating a problem for ourselves by talking about the entire one point one billion muslims living almost all over the world uh yet, yes we are i mean we are when we're speaking of a collective called the ummah we are inevitably taking a risk what well, we should always remind ourselves that the muslim world is very very complex and very very diverse first of all societies are very different bosnia is very different from afghanistan arab countries in themselves are very different libya has tribal issues i mean but there's no fgm and then female situation if you go to syria you would have a different seen if you i mean there are different political systems of course i mean there are absolute monarchies constant monarchies or republics authoritarian republics. As turkey as a big kt itself so so there is no, no, no single Muslim That's key. But then on the other hand, if we're going to speak about European problems, if we're going to speak about North America, so the collective also called the which is diverse in itself, and I think we should be able to talk about that. Hi, sorry, this is not
1: Ali. Um, I'm Isabel. I'm the executive officer here at Istanbul Network. So I'll be taking over Ali now because he's currently in Pakistan
2: and his internet is not working. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Can I Isabel continue with and read them here and, and answer them?
3: Uh, so there's a follow-up question from
2: Okay, I will just take up a few questions that yeah. <laughs> I think speaking of nation states, I think Tunisia still continues to be the best political experiment so far in the Middle East. You guys probably know that I was very optimistic about Turkey's potential to become a exemplary political model. Turkey was doing pretty well, 2012 or 11, maybe 13. Unfortunately, Turkey went down in a downward spiral, and I am not sure whether we hit the bottom yet in Turkey. It is a, it's a kind of revenge of the conservatives from the secularists after being excluded for a century and the, the, the zeal and the excitement of that has not calmed down yet. So therefore, I when I look, I see Tunisia and why Tunisia is a good example just because, um, I think in my view, mainly because it's been able to show that consensus works. The Middle Eastern politics is defined by confrontation most of the time. Tunisia has shown us that consensus can work and although it's a country with poor economic resources going through economic tension which was recently highlighted in protest, Uh, but I think it's still the best example we have Uh, Indonesia is still an interesting case in the Balkans you have Bosnia and in in, in different Muslim societies you have of course different inclinations towards reform and change there is but if you want me to point out to one promising Muslim political experiment today I would still point to Tunisia. and adding that you know there are some stable monarchies in the Arab world like Morocco that are doing for their own ways uh relatively better than some of the so-called revolutionary republics uh, so there's a Yad also says there's a question of whether we are doing reform at the brink of a major global shift anyway well that is true the major global shift is actually away from liberalism because the liberalism itself is being challenged in the West and it's really hard to argue at a time when people are saying declaring the end of liberalism in the West we're uh, arguing for more liberalism in the Muslim world however what I think is that we're not seeing the end of liberalism we are not going to reverse the gains of speech freedom of quality of the law but what, what, what has happened in the past decade is that globalization triggered an illiberal response in many societies because globalization brought people face to face and people freaked out from what they saw for fear difference and people fear different opportunities so we are now seeing a resurgence against globalization and nationalism there in all corners of the world including even in the West but this doesn't mean, I think, we are going back to a pre-Enlightenment dark era, just autocratic nation states fighting each other. It will be just a difficult century in all ways. And a part of the difficulty is global, part of the difficulty is within the world. What ha- will happen to Islam after ISIS shock? First of all, we should get what ISIS shock as well. I don't agree with people who say ISIS has nothing to do with Islam. It is, It has something to do with Islam in the sense that it has been the most fanatic, of all Salafi jihadist groups that we have seen so far and I think it has shown us how dangerous a certain ideological trend in Islam can become when it is taken to its extremes. It is like, like Khmer Rouge, but what Khmer Rouge was for communism, I think ISIS was for Islamism. Most of the communists would find Khmer Rouge, which killed 3 million people in Cambodia in two years, shockingly horrific, but it had come out of some of the precepts of, this, uh, of communism. And I think the same thing is uh, said for ISIS. Well, if you take the right lessons, ISIS will show us that well, if you think that there's no need for any reform in jurisprudence, here you go. You can end up in going all the way to ISIS, establishing slavery in the middle of uh, the 21st century. So, in that sense, ISIS was a wake up call, I think, for change and reform. Whether we'll get the lesson or not, I don't know. And ISIS will not die as an idea. It will pop up in here and there as franchises uh, in the name of yeah, is Boko Haram or Shababina or elsewhere. Uh, now, Khalud asks about Turk. Uh, uh, Muhammad asks, "Okay, I was hoping to hear a little bit more about Turkey. Wasn't sure if it was within the scope of the talk. Well, Turkey is here's Turkey in a nutshell because I'm Turkish and you, I mean, you might be. What a." I've supported Erdogan, I've supported the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, for a long time, because the, it seemed that Turkey was under the control of the secularists, the Kemalists for a century, which were secular but neither democratic nor liberal. And AKP came by embracing some liberal ideas against these secularists and accomplishing EU reforms. It was the dream of you know seeing Islam and liberal political liberalism being synthesized. It was a great. So I have a chapter on that, on my book, Islam Without a Games. So I, I saw that and I thought that this is what's happening. But I was too early to judge. I think Adalon and his supporters embraced liberal ideas pragmatically it was helpful in the early 2000s against the secular establishment against the military but once they crept and captured power they don't need those ideas anymore and they just started to go back to their ideological roots and 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 just it turned into you know the conservatives dominating the system rather than building a system of quality and I think there is a sense a a century-long revenge century-long yearning for power and the more they got power the more they corrupted and it went on and on. And They faced some fierce reactions, and those reactions made them more fanatic. On the other hand, a power struggle emerged among religious conservatives, supporters of Erdogan versus followers of Klerk Gülen, uh, and that turned into a kind of Stalinist versus Trotskyite war. Gülen and his group are not clean, I should emphasize that, and I think they were really behind the coup attempts and some other things that has been going on in Turkey in the past couple of years. But it turned into an intra-Islamist rivalry, war, which surpassed anything else and destroyed, you know, the institutions of the state as well. So today Turkey is in a very toxic state of mind and Erdogan seems to be willing to stay in power for as long as he lives and to be able to do that he's clinging on to power uh, with more constraints on the media, uh, with actually dominating almost the whole year. So Turkey, I don't think will be anytime soon, you know, going back to the nice liberal reformist country it was. Uh, until four or five years ago. Ask, thank you, I would add, yes, absolutely, until the political situation is stable, the security is meditated. Okay, it was just a comment, thank you. And Yad says, I get the feeling in Arab societies, debates that ISIS has been a shock to the Islamist project and to the Islamic orthodoxy or traditionalism. There's a loss of legitimacy among the mainstream, and it appears that the ideological scene is going to open up very soon, which may be an opportunity for people like us. Great. I mean, Yad, you know the Arab world much better than me. So if that is the case, if ISIS has been... That you know, wake up call. Then that's good. I just think that people will not say. I hope people will not say. Just like every failed communist experiment. Oh, this was a wrong one. We should try it again. And I think uh, we should soberly look into ISIS and uh, try to understand what happens and uh, why it happens. What are what are the lessons to draw from that disastrous experiment? They 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 could justify almost everything they did by finding fatwas. Uh, in, in classical Sunni jurisprudence. So we should... I mean, some oh, those petfas were not implemented. Some of them were obsolete. Some of them were just on paper, but not being put in practice. They did it. They put it on practice proudly, ag- aggressively. And here we ended up by ISIS. So we should take a lesson from that. If people realize that, yeah, as you say, then ISIS can be a good wake-up call for reform, the kind of reform we're talking about. Let me thank the Istanbul Network and to all our friends who joined the conversation. Thanks for sparing your time for me. and. Uh, uh, and I hope we had some good an hour together. And I hope we'll see more reform in the Muslim world. And let's let's move forward.
0: This webinar recording is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you are looking for more, you can find it on our website at IslamandLibertyNetwork.org. And if you want to help us, there is a donation button on the site. Thank you for your support, and we hope you found it interesting.